Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Frankly Box. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Stephen Wolfram, who will be talking about a new kind of science. Also, we'll find out what an undertow is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grogs. Welcome back to Berkeley Grogs. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Do you like sea mounts? Like mounds in the sea? Mounts. So apparently there are another name for undersea volcanic mountains, big hills in the sea. Apparently they seem to be a source of high, very high diversity. There seems to be a lot of microbes. So diversity of species, different microbes. Yeah, diversity of species. Bio. Maybe Arnold's all for this, but I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't support oil drilling, so maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. But so one of the problems that the, uh, the oceans are facing is that these sea mounts are getting destroyed by fish trawlers. So these trawlers are just knocking these things over? Is that? Not necessarily. It could be that they're overfishing it and disturbing the ecosystem so much that all the life around these seamounts are just getting destroyed. Mm. And scientists are worried because there's apparently thousands of species of microbes and other stuff that we haven't yet discovered that live around these seamounts. For example, in a study carried out on five seamounts, 600 different species were identified. It hadn't been identified before. Right. And it's estimated that in the Pacific Ocean, there's probably around 30,000 of these seamounts and only maybe 150 of them have actually been studied. So it shows that there could be incredible diversity that we haven't right. Well, I mean, that's sort of the same argument, I guess, with the rainforest. Where, uh... Yeah, the Amazon. So I guess if everyone wants to more, they can go to a, uh, a recent edition of The New Scientist, and this was work carried out by Karen Stocks at the University of California at San Diego. <laughs> Okay, and uh, another issue for conservation biologists, if they don't want to save the seamounts, they can save the elephants. We need more farters out there, huh? <laughs> you did say farters, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure how that applies, actually, to elephants. I, I thought they fart a lot. <laughs> well, that's, that's news to me. It might not be news to the elephants. Uh, but it turns out that a new subspecies of elephant has been um, suggested to be in Borneo. Wow, are these, like, the ones with huge ears and can fly? Uh, those are the ones that you find uh, after drinking huge amounts of liquor. Oh, okay. Uh, now, these are, in fact, a group of elephants that was first believed to actually have been a species derived from Asian elephants, uh-huh. but in fact looks like they derived from a species that migrated to Borneo many, many years ago. Wow, 30... our Asian brothers. Well, uh, so it was quite a mystery because they've always wondered why there are these elephants in Borneo. And the story goes that these animals were presented to the Sultan of Sulu by the East India Trading Company. Wow. But recent genetic tests have shown that these elephants are, in fact, a subspecies of elephants that perhaps migrated to Borneo 30,000 years ago when the tip was connected to Malaysia. Now this whole thing has brought conservation biologists into the picture because they want to preserve these species, mm-hmm. which are dwindling, wow. uh, because farmers now are just shooting at them for the fun of it. Yikes, that's too bad. Yeah. Besides being an issue for elephant lovers everywhere, this was also a finding that was published in the recent Public Library of Science journal, Biology. Public Library of Science, P-L-O-S. PLOS. PLOS. Public Library of Science Journal, just as a side note, that this is one of those new open access journals that's being... uh, Open access? You mean like for everyone? Yeah, so, uh, you know, most journals actually, they charge for uh, access to their content. Right. But these Public Library of Science fellows are publishing stuff which is readily available, accessible by anybody. Cool. Yeah, so check out Public Library of Science Biology next time you're in the Public Library of Science. 
Wow, I should follow something in there. Imagine if the government had a chip in you that could track your every movement. I think they have one in me right now. Oh, man. But I think you're on Mars, right? <laughs> They're actually beaming messages to my brain, uh, controlling every word that I say. Mm. All hail Bush. He is the master. <laughs> I See, I, I couldn't control myself there. Oh, man. It's the government. Oh, man. I think we should get funding from the Republican Party. Indeed, we should. No, the Republican Party does not fund this. <laughs> But, Again, I can't. You know, this could be a reality in the not-too-distant future. Is that right? Yes. So Motorola, Nextel, and other firms are building chips, primarily to be used for cell phones that could track the location of a person. But soon these things could be so cheap that you could have implants and other little devices to track packages and perhaps people. Right. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I would imagine that the purpose of the implant would be more than just tracking people. It would be perhaps uh, some sort of biorecognition type device for uh, identity. Right. Password also tracking like parolees or whatever. Okay. <laughs> but. So, you know, all the trends in, in technology is just that this is actually going to be very realistic because these satellites are going to become stronger. They're going to have better signal, be able to deal better with, you know, interference from, you know, TV and right. radio waves and all that. So what's to prevent somebody from cutting out the uh, implant? A good idea. Maybe yeah. it uh, self-destructs or something. Yeah, that's a cool idea. <laughs> I haven't seen enough science fiction movies to know all the little caveats. Mm. So, uh, you know, this was very useful during the last couple of wars when the military was trying to track that's where so all their missiles were going and all right. that. But now that it's such a consumer viable item, Everyone can have one. <laughs> so I guess if anyone wants to know more about GPS technology, global positioning as this is called, go to the recent issue of Scientific American. Imagine if we had a chip to track all the SARS viruses. I don't know. Who knows? That might be possible. I mean, you know, uh, use those nanoprobes. Especially since it turns out there's going to be a sequel to SARS. Wow. Thought all Episode the, 2. You thought all the sequels were over during the summer you know, blockbuster. Attack of the Clones. <laughs> Not that far from the truth, actually, because there's an outbreak of mild respiratory disease in two nursing homes uh, near Vancouver, Canada, which, oh, that's ha- right. which has had scientists and public health experts a little puzzled. I thought they refuted the SARS as the cause of that. Right. Uh, well, it looks like it's part of the same family of virus, the coronavirus, as SARS. And so researchers at Canada's National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg are really looking at this uh, virus to see if it is, in fact, coronavirus SARS or related form or if it's a mutated form or what's exactly going on here. Huh. So it's a potentially worrisome finding, according to virologist Albert Osterhaus of Erasmus University in Rotterdam. But he says right now they just don't have enough data to say anything useful. Oh, no, like most calls, a lot of times they don't just go away within a year, right? They keep coming back. Right. So according to Dick Thompson, who is a WHO spokesperson, right now it's just a lab anomaly, but it could be a warning to monitor this disease because it could mutate back into Mm. something deadly. Right. Anyone is interested in reading more about that, you can take a look at the recent edition of Science Now. Now. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Bert Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming next, Dr. Stephen Wolfram will join us to discuss a new kind of science. So stay tuned.
back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, the massive progress of the scientific enterprise over the past several centuries has owed its success in large part to the development of mathematical models that are capable of predicting real-world events. However, the limitations of describing the world in terms of mathematical equations becomes readily apparent as one begins to deal with extremely complex phenomena. There have been many approaches to describing such complexity, but until now, none is proposed to define a new kind of science. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss these issues is Dr. Stephen Wolfram. Dr. Wolfram is the founder of Wolfram Research, creators of Mathematica. He received his Ph.D. in theoretical physics from Caltech at the age of 20 and was awarded with a MacArthur Genius Fellowship just a few years later. He is the scientist and author behind the book A New Kind of Science and joins us today to discuss these issues. Dr. Wolfram, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, it's certainly our pleasure. You've written a very fascinating book and no doubt a, a very controversial one. Uh, before we get into the actual ideas of a new kind of science, I'm just curious if you can explain to our audience the broad problem in science that this is trying to address. You kind of alluded to it in, in your introduction. I mean, for the last 300 or so years, the exact sciences have been dominated by what's really a very good idea, which is the idea that one can describe the natural world using mathematical equations. And that idea has led to lots of the advances that we've seen in science in the past 300 years, but there also are places where science has not so far been able to make exact progress. And when one sees lots of kinds of complex phenomena in nature, one's sort of confronted with the same kinds of problems over and over again. And the thing that got me started on the science that I've been building now for about 20 years or so was the question of, okay, if mathematical equations can't make progress in understanding complex phenomena in the natural world, how might we make Make progress. And sort of the thing that I realized was, well, if you're going to do theoretical science at all, you have to assume that nature operates according to some kind of definite rules. The issue is, do those rules have to be rules that are based on the kind of constructs that we've sort of set up in human mathematics, things like numbers and exponentials and integrals and so on, or, or can the rules somehow be more general? So the thing that I realized rather gradually, I must say, starting about 20 years ago, was now that we know about computers and things, there's the possibility of sort of a more general basis for rules for describing nature. And that more general basis is the kinds of rules that we can embody in computer programs. So what I ended up doing was asking the question, if nature uses these more general kinds of rules, how might that work? And so sort of the first issue is, well, what do typical arbitrarily chosen computer programs actually do? I mean, the programs that we use in practice tend to be programs that are set up for very particular purposes, let's say, to do word processing or to be mathematical or some, something like that. But the question that I sort of wanted to ask was kind of a basic science question, which is if we just look at very simple programs, programs that could be described by, let's say, one line of computer code, programs that where the instructions were, let's say, just chosen at random and there are just a few of them, what would programs like that typically do? And what one might have thought, and what I certainly thought, was that if the program is simple enough, then somehow what it does must also be correspondingly simple. But what I decided was that I should actually do a sort of systematic experiment to find out what simple programs actually do. And what happened was that I found something completely different from what I expected and extremely surprising, at least to me, which was that even some of the very simplest programs were construct ended up showing behavior that was incredibly complicated. And what was more exciting was that the behavior that they showed that was complicated seemed to be complicated in sort of the same kinds of ways as a lot of behavior that we see in nature is complicated. And so this kind of got me started on this direction of understanding that there was sort of a, a new way to approach doing science that was based on these sort of more general rules that can be embodied in, in simple computer programs. And I guess the, the core of what I've tried to do is a new kind of basic science 
but really is concerned with exploring the computational world, but sort of asking the question, if one has a, an instrument like a telescope or something, you look out and, into the astronomical world and see all the phenomena out there. With computers, we can look out into the computational world and see what kinds of phenomena are out there. And what I found is that there's some very exciting phenomena out there. And I, the core of the basic science that I've tried to build is concerned with this question, what's out there in the computational world? Uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe explain what some of these types of programs might look like, uh, as it's certainly very well illustrated in the book. Right. So, so, I mean, a typical kind of thing would be the kind that I've found particularly easy to display graphically and so on are some things called cellular automata. And so a, a typical way that's set up is you have a line of cells. Each cell is either black or white. And let's say you start off with just one black cell in the middle and all the other cells white. And then the way it works is that you let the thing sort of evolve in a sequence of steps. And at each step, the color of a particular cell is determined by the color of the cell right above it and the cells to its left and right above. And you just have some very simple rule that says what the color of the cell will be given the colors of those previous cells. Start off from one black cell at the top. And you might have thought that with a really simple setup like that, that you get patterns that would sort of always look visually very simple. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly what I thought would be the case. But if you actually just try out all the possible rules, you find that some of them can kind of number all the rules. And when you get to, for example, rule 30, kind of one of my all-time favorite kind of simple programs, you find that you started off from just one black cell, and it makes this pattern that looks incredibly complicated and actually quite random. In fact, if it makes good enough randomness, for example, that we've been able to use it as the source of random numbers in Mathematica for oh. the past 15 years or so. But the point is that it's a, an extremely simple rule. It's the kind of thing that one could readily imagine some system in nature might follow. Yet, even though the rule is very simple, the behavior that it produces is extremely complicated. You know, our, our usual intuition, which I think we get from our experiences with sort of everyday life and engineering and so on, is that to, to make something complicated, you somehow have to sort of go to lots of effort to do that. What's remarkable about something like Rule 30 is that even with this very simple rule, it effortlessly produces extremely complex behavior. And what's sort of interesting about that is it seems like in nature, we often see that same kind of thing going on, of sort of effortlessly lots of very complicated behavior being produced. And I think it's always something that, in a sense, is embarrassing about our current technology, that, you know, if you compare artifacts with systems from nature, one of the ways to kind of tell what's an artifact is by what tends to look simpler. Because it seems like sort of nature has some secret that it uses to make complicated things that we, when we do engineering, don't yet seem to be using. And I, I think that this phenomenon that we see in, in something like Rule 30 is the key to that secret that nature has that allows it to make complicated things very easily. So rather than complexity arising from complexity, it arises more from maybe a very simple type of rule. Right. I mean, the issue is if you restrict the kinds of rules that you look at to ones that you can readily analyze, and that's what's tended to happen in kind of the mathematical approach to science, that the, that the rules that one looks at, the equations and so on that one looks at, tend to be restricted to ones where there's at least some kind of analysis that can readily be done on them. But if you sort of explore the computational world arbitrarily, just looking at what's out there, not choosing what you study according to what you can analyze, then you find that there's all sorts of very different kinds of things that can happen, and those seem to be a lot more more like what nature is often actually using. So how might these, uh, these rules then actually be implemented in the physical universe? Where would we find these rules and how would they actually work? 
one thing one has to understand about models of things is, is models are abstractions of systems. Mm-hmm. You know, when we look at, for example, traditional Newtonian mechanics, let's say, you know, some model of the Earth going around the sun and being described, let's say, by differential equations and so on. Mm-hmm. We don't imagine that sort of inside the Earth there are lots of little mathematicas that are solving differential equations. What we imagine is that these differential equations provide some sort of abstract description mm-hmm. of the way that the Earth moves around the sun. And it's the same kind of thing with these simple programs. I mean, for example, if one's trying to make a, say, a, a description of, I don't know, how some mollusk produces the pattern on its shell, what one imagines is that these simple programs, let's say cellular automata, describe in some sort of abstract, idealized way the way in which, let's say, a, a row of pigment-producing cells on the leading edge of the, the growing shell operate. I've looked at um, a bunch of different kinds of situations where one can really sort of dig in and, and take what one's learned from exploring the computational world and, and see how to sort of apply it to particular systems in, in nature. And it's been kind of interesting because there are lots of cases where phenomena that before seemed to be completely mysterious and it seemed like there was no way that one could get any real understanding of how something like what was happening could happen. It seems like one can start to say things. I mean, an example is uh, fluid turbulence. You know, if you have a, a fluid flowing past an object... It's a universal thing that uh, if it flows fast enough, behind the object you get this random complicated pattern of flow that gets produced, mm-hmm. so-called turbulence. And there's kind of a basic question, which is, why is there the kind of randomness that we see in turbulence? Well, mm-hmm. there's sort of a, a long story of what, what's been investigated about that, but the bottom line is that one still hasn't had a fundamental explanation for why there's that kind of randomness. And I think that things like this Rule 30 phenomenon finally give one an actual explanation for why there's that kind of randomness and give various predictions about some rather surprising predictions actually about how that randomness should work. I see. And so how does this then differ from say the methods that is like chaos theory that try to explain randomness in terms of variance in terms of the initial conditions and things like that? Right. So what happens is that if you look at, for example, the phenomenon of randomness and you ask, okay, we're seeing something random happening, we can ask where does that randomness come from? And basically there are three explanations that one can imagine. One is something like the way that randomness happens when, you know, a boat is bobbing up and down on an ocean. There's nothing particularly random about the boat itself. It's just that the fact that the environment of the ocean is random produces the bobbing of the boat. And that was the traditional scientific explanation for randomness. It's sort of, it comes from noise in the environment. Then the chaos theory explanation that's, well, about 100 years old, but been popular for perhaps 20 years, is the idea that, no, it doesn't come from randomness in the environment. It comes specifically from the initial conditions for the system that one's looking at. So, for example, a typical case would be, you know, when you flip a coin, the fact that there's something uncertain about the initial velocity of the coin, because let's say one flipped it by hand, means that when the coin finally lands, it's random in a sense which way up the coin lands because of that randomness that one put in through sort of uncertainty and and exactly how fast one flipped it at the beginning. But again, that's sort of an explanation for randomness that says, well, the randomness doesn't come from inside the system we're looking at, in this case, the coin. It comes from something outside the system, namely the way that the initial conditions were prepared for the system. Well, what happens in the things I've looked at is there's actually a third kind of randomness what I call intrinsic randomness generation that happens in things like this Rule 30 cellular automaton that I, that I mentioned. And what happens there is there's no kind of noise from the outside. There's just a very definite rule that gets followed at each step. Similarly, there's nothing that's been elaborately prepared about the initial conditions. The initial conditions might just consist of one black cell, but yet when you run the system, it just intrinsically produces randomness just by the character of following its rules. 
there are analogies of that, actually, in areas of mathematics. I mean, for example, if you look at the digits of pi, the actual procedure for generating the digits of pi is very deterministic and, and even fairly simple, yet the digits, once produced, seem to us completely random. And that this Rule 30 phenomenon is a case of that that is more general and more directly related to what happens in nature, but that's sort of the character of the explanation that one has for randomness that occurs in nature. Is it, It's something that comes intrinsically from following these rules, and the rules that produce randomness are ones that are actually quite common if one samples possible rules at random, but they're very rare if one chooses the rules that, in fact, one will never find them, if one chooses the rules to study on the basis of being able to analyze the rules by particular methods of analysis that, for example, come from mathematics. So what do you think this then says about the fundamental nature of the universe if very simple rules can give rise to very complex behavior? Does this just mean that perhaps we don't understand the patterns that are generated and characterize them as random, or is there something more fundamental regarding the universe that this entails? So when I first saw the Rule 30 phenomenon, for example, my first instinct was there must be regularity in these patterns. It's just that there's something imperfect about our visual system. There is really regularity here, but we just can't see it. So, you know, I ran all sort of mathematical statistics statistical and so on, tests and so on, and I found that, no, so far as I could tell, the thing really did seem perfectly random. Well, it took me a long time to really sort of understand what foundationally was going on there, and I can explain it. It's related to the thing that I call the principle of computational equivalence. And essentially what it is is this. You, you can think of any of these processes that are going on of forming these patterns of black and white squares or whatever as computational processes. It's like you put in some input to the computation at the top, and then the pattern that's produced is the output from the computation. Well, you can also think of the processes that we go through in analyzing these patterns as being computations. And then the question is, which of these computations is more powerful, the one that's used to produce the pattern or the one that we use to analyze the pattern? Now, what one might have thought is that something that's based on you know, very simple rules about black and white squares and so on would somehow be intrinsically computationally much less sophisticated than we as analyzers of the system will be. But the surprising thing that, that came out of my explorations in the computational world has been this thing that I call the principle of computational equivalence, which basically, among other things, says that one should expect that whenever there's a system that sort of looks complicated to us, it will actually be just as computationally sophisticated as, for example, we are, or as any other system that we find in the universe should be. And so, in a sense, this principle of computational equivalence is the underlying foundational origin of this phenomenon, that one can get very complicated behavior from very simple rules, because it says that, that even with very simple rules, you reach this area of computational equivalence. You reach systems that are equivalent in terms of their computational sophistication with any systems that we might have, for example, to analyze those systems. So this leads to phenomena I call computational irreducibility. That's to do with the following thing. I mean, traditionally in science, one of the uh, things one wants to do is to make sort of fast predictions of what will happen in a system. So, for instance, if you're looking at the Earth going around the sun, described by some sort of simple two-body problem formula, if you want to know, you know, where will the Earth be a million years from now, you don't have to trace a million orbits of the Earth around the sun. You basically just fill a number into this formula and immediately get out the answer. And that's sort of a case where we, by doing sort of more sophisticated computation, have been able to sort of reduce the effort necessary to figure out what will happen in the position of the Earth. But the thing that comes out of what I've done and from this principle of computational equivalence is that actually there are lots of systems where you can't do this. There are lots of systems that are computationally irreducible, where effectively to know what will happen in the system takes as much computational effort as the system itself has to go through to work out what it will do. So this is a, a fundamental limitation on at least precise predictions that we can make by scientific methods, so to speak. 
So certainly, I guess the principle of computation or irreducibility limits our predictive capabilities in terms of describing some complex phenomenon. So would you say it would be better then to use mathematical models and add some factor and say, well, this is our best approximation for well, describing? Well, you see, unfortunately, when you say, let's make an approximation, it turns out you can't get it exactly. You can't get certain kinds of approximations either. You can ask for a model for the approximations too, and that runs into the same issue. Now, it's not to say that you can't say anything about what these systems do. In fact, for example, as a practical matter, Using simple programs, for example, you can often get very efficient simulation methods, which will allow you to say in practice a lot about what a particular system will do. In fact, this phenomenon of computational irreducibility just puts more pressure on having the best minimal models for systems. Because if you have to, you know, at every step in figuring out what a system will do, if you have to do all sorts of elaborate numerical analysis and solve all sorts of complicated partial differential equations or whatever, it becomes very difficult in practice to figure out what the system will do. If you can use as your underlying model some very simple program, then as a practical matter, you will often be able to figure out what the system will do. The most extreme case of all of this, and you know, we've been talking a little bit about making models for things and so on, the most extreme and uh, ambitious case is sort of the whole universe. The question of uh, having seen what happens in the computational universe, what happens when you look at these different rules and their consequences, and, and having seen that even very simple rules can produce very complicated behavior, the ultimate question one might ask is, okay, well, what about our whole universe? We see all this complicated behavior in our universe. Could it be the case that all of that complicated behavior is really the result of just applying over and over again some extremely simple underlying rule? Now, you know, if you look at the history of physics, for example, one is pessimistic, perhaps, about that outcome because, for example, as we've looked at greater and greater levels of smallness in the physical universe, it's tended to seem that the kinds of mathematical approaches that we have to use get ever more complicated. It doesn't seem like that's going to come to an end and that we're ever going to find sort of simple underlying rule that describes our whole universe. But from what I've seen in exploring the, the, the computational universe, I'm much more hopeful about that. And in fact, I've done lots of work and continue to do quite a bit of work in, uh, in trying to figure out precisely what might be the ultimate rule for the universe. <laughs> We're running a little bit out of time here, but uh, I'm just curious, uh, maybe you could actually describe what might this type of rule for the universe look like? Uh, right. So, so, I mean, one, one of the things that's true about it is if you want to fit sort of everything in the universe into that very small package of a very simple rule, then almost nothing about that rule will tend to be familiar from our everyday experience with the universe. I mean, there sort of just isn't room in, a, in one very simple rule to fit in the fact that there are three dimensions in space or the mass of the muon compared to the electron or whatever. Mm -hmm. It all sort of has to be mixed together and sort of packaged in a way that to us will necessarily look extremely abstract. And the best representation of what I think might be going on that I've found is to think about sort of space, for example, as this kind of giant network where there's a, a collection of discrete points and sort of all one knows is how each point is connected to other points. And then that uh, time works by sort of updatings of this network in, in various ways. And kind of what's interesting at the beginning is that the kinds of things one needs in order to get sort of a consistent updating scheme in this network turn out it's to immediately imply special relativity. So in effect, by knowing basic things about the way that space and time are set up, one immediately can derive something one doesn't normally expect to be able to do in, in physics for something like that, the principle of relativity, and one can even go on and derive certain properties of gravity. And I think I'm beginning to see how to derive various features of quantum mechanics uh, from the same kind of thing. That's a, a very simple sort of underlying setup in which essentially the, the universe consists of this giant network where all one knows is how each discrete point is connected 
connected to other discrete points in space. And it's a little abstract and takes a little bit longer to explain even what I figured out so far. It'll probably, once one actually knows the final answer, it will probably be somewhat easier to, to explain than it is when one's still sort of working towards the answer. Right. But, you know, if I'm right about this, the way that things will come out is that one will be able to say this this little rule that we can write down in a few lines of Mathematica code or you know, in some pictures or something, this little rule, if we started off from this initial condition, will make absolutely everything that now exists and will ever exist in our universe. And that's, uh, that's something that will be an exciting uh, thing to happen in science because it's sort of the edge of science in some sense. And I think that one's sort of now beginning to get some of the intuition that one needs to be able to see how to get there from this effort of a sort of exploring the computational universe. Well, that, that would certainly be a, a remarkable goal if such a rule could be written. And I think it's a, a very perfect place to end our talk here. But Dr. Wolfram, I just want to thank you very much for joining us today to give us a glimpse about ideas contained in your book, A New Kind of Science, and for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Great. Thank you very much. You were just listening to Dr. Stephen Wolfram, co-founder of Wolfram Research and the scientist behind A New Kind of Science, discussing intrinsic complexity in nature. If anyone is interested in learning more about the issues contained in A New Kind of Science, you can go to his website at www.wolframscience.com. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, you can find out what are the cycles of sunspots. So stay tuned. Hello, and now it is the time for the answer to last week's question of the week. Ah, but of course, the, the question which was, how often does the sun have sunspots, the cycles? Uh, the interesting thing from the Jacques Zohoro is that it has 11-month cycles. And now you know. Uh-huh. It burns. Okay, and now here's a Tokyo kid with uh, this week's question of the week. What is the Richter scale? It is important for all you folks in California, also here in Japan, where it shakes a little bit once in a while. If you know the answer or just uh, thinks you know the answer, email us at uh, groks at hotmail.com. Uh, you want to win anything, but you might just uh, stand still. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Rocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. Pixel.